0: Please remain standing with me for our scripture reading. Uh, This morning, Brandon uh, is preaching for us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And every week we go to the scriptures because it is there that the person and work of Christ are most clearly revealed for us. Listen to these words from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. This is God's word, and we would be wise to listen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. Good morning to you, uh, gathering online at home with us uh, as well. Uh, my name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. If we haven't met, would love to meet after the gathering. Uh, we're in a series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the more famous teachings of Jesus, where we're considering looking at what, what human flourishing looks like. And when we began the series, we, we said this. We said to understand the, the Sermon on the Mount, you, you have to have it in the context of Matthew, where it sits in the narrative. And so, right before Jesus went up the mountain and began this sermon, he, he said this. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we said, The Sermon on the Mount is essentially uh, an unfolding and unpacking of what a life of repentance looks like. And it started with the Beatitudes. Um, the blessed are the statements. And then last week we saw this imagery of salt and light, uh, which is Jesus' mission statement for the Sermon on the Mount. It's the here's why, Here's why all of this matters. Why? So that they, your neighbors, they, others, would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And this week uh, I want to begin with a question just like I did last week. This question uh, is a question that came from my uh, counselor. Uh, My counselor put together a uh, retreat, uh, 14,000 acre ranch, no electricity, uh, no cell service for a guy who doesn't go camping. All right, not exactly my comfort zone. The prep work was answer this question, come ready to talk. Here's the question. If you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? If you could just wave the wand, if you could say, hey, God, heal, change this one thing about my life, what would it be? I want to ask you that question. If you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? All of us have an answer. What's yours? Whatever your answer is, here's what I think Jesus wants to do today. I think he wants to get off the surface and get inside of it and get to the heart of it. So let's talk about our text and see what Jesus might have to say to us this morning. The text we're looking at, uh, 17 through 48, it's one unit in the Sermon on the Mount. It's broken into three parts. Uh, 17 through 20, it's the main point that Jesus is making here in this section and actually provides sort of the thesis statement if we could go back to college. The thesis statement for really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. 21 through 47 are a series of six examples that Jesus gives to reinforce his point. Uh, We didn't read those, but I'll I'll give an overview and explain why in a moment. And then 48 is a summary statement of this, this unit at large here. And so let's start with 17 through 20, and see what Jesus has to say. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, this verse right here, it it actually gets to one of uh, the more central debates of the last 2,000 years. The debate today, uh, it's often confined to seminaries and pulpits, But back in this day, in the first century, this was no ivory tower debate. This was a debate that cost people their lives. How they answered, what side of the debate they were on, it cost men and women their lives in the first century. And here's the debate. What's the relationship between Christ, Christians, and the Old Testament? Is it now that Christ is here, We don't have to uh, follow any of the Old Testament. We can just set it aside. Or is it even though Christ is here, we still have to follow all of the Old Testament? How do we read and apply the Old Testament as Christians today? This was the debate. Now, in this short paragraph that we are looking at, Jesus is not saying all that there is to say about how to read the Old Testament. So we are not going to say all that there is to say about how to read the Old Testament. He he is making a narrow argument because he's making a specific point. And so when he says law, here's what he means, law and prophets. Law is the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses. And then prophets, this is shorthand in his day. That culturally speaking, this was shorthand for the rest of the Old Testament. So law and prophets, law or the prophets, this is shorthand for the entire Old Testament. But I think there's more happening, there's more going on here than simply Jesus saying all of the Old Testament. I think that when he says uh, uh, law and prophets, what he's saying is this, that the law, first five books of the Old Testament, as interpreted by the prophets... Law as interpreted by the authors of the rest of the Old Testament. Listen to this quote. Behind me, you're going to see brackets around some things. That's where I bracketed the impressive language. You know, the words you put in to sound smart. You'll all know what I'm talking about. But Listen to this. In Matthew five seventeen through 20, the law or the prophets seems to be providing more than a reference to the whole canon. Canon, that's the Bible. Instead, by adding reference to the prophets... Jesus indicates that he is talking about the law interpreted not only as it was given in its essence, but as it was prophetically interpreted. That is, it is understood within the context of the whole Bible, with the prophets as interpreters of the law, calling people back to wholehearted and forward-looking faithfulness to the covenant. So it's law, not just as it's given, but law as it's given and interpreted by the prophets, and so here's here's kind of boots on the ground where that matters uh, when it comes to Israel in the Old Testament. It, it wasn't, hey, the Exodus. What does it mean for you? Tell me what it means for you that that the Exodus happens. It wasn't, yeah, yeah but th- that's what it means for you, and that's great for you. But this is what it means for me. It was law, Exodus, as interpreted by the prophets. The meaning of it was determined by the prophets, and we'll get to more of why that matters in just a moment. But let's start where Jesus did. I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. To abolish, it means to put an end to, to get rid of. All right, The abolitionist movement was the movement to get rid of or put an end to slavery. It's not saying I came to abolish and to get rid of. There's a scene in uh, the show, The Office. Y'all know that show? It's, it's uncomfortable these days to admit that you like that show. It's okay. I get it. I feel you. There's a scene where Michael Scott, main character, he's um, giving a speech to some grad students. He's kind of the show and tell guy. And he grabs a student's textbook and he starts ripping pages out, throwing them and says, you, you can't learn from books tear these pages out and learn from life lessons or something like that. So Jesus is not up here on this mount with a scroll of the Old Testament, just ripping it apart and going, you don't need that. You don't need that. You don't need that. Just start following me. I didn't come to get rid of it, Jesus says. In fact, he says quite the opposite. He says, I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. I came to bring to completion all that was originally intended by it. I came not to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. Rudolf Schnackenberg. What a great name that is. Want to say it with me? Schnackenberg. He said the law fulfilled here, it's, it's that the prophetic aim, the center, the bullseye of it was found in Jesus he was where it was pointing. He is where it was heading, that Jesus is the supreme interpreter of the law. That as it was, law, as interpreted by the prophets, it is now law and prophets, as interpreted by Jesus. He is both the arrow the Old Testament is pointing to and the lens through which we read it. He is the perfect son who obeyed all ten commandments. He is the one delivering from the true exodus of sin and death. He is the true Moses leading his people to the promised land. He is the true sacrifice who died in the place of his people. He is the perfect king leading his people with gentleness and courage. He is the perfect priest and prophet, the true Israel who never abandoned his father. He is the one that the Old Testament finds its ultimate aim. He is the one that it points to. He is the one that it reveals. All of the hopes of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in him, and he is the one for whom all stories are a shadow of. He is the one. If we gave you all a set of green glasses, green lenses, everywhere you looked, you would see shades of green. Because you are looking at everything through green-tinted lenses. Jesus is the lens through which we read the Old Testament. So that everywhere we look, everywhere we read, we see shades of Jesus there. We see him in every story. We see him as what every story points to. We see him as what every person is a reflection of, either antithesis or in prediction of. Everywhere we look, we see him. Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. Why would I do that? It's about me. Why would I want to get rid of it? It's about me. I did not come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. But let's keep reading. Jesus is getting closer to the point that he is making in this paragraph. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Verse 18. Until heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished. These are grammatically parallel phrases. Right, it comes through in the English, you can see it, until, until, until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished. Grammatically parallel it means they're mutually interpreting phrases. So it's uh, heaven and earth passes away. When it does, all things will be accomplished. When all things are accomplished, earth will pass away, vice versa. Heaven and earth passing away, this was uh, shorthand imagery for when God's reign covers the earth. Actually, gets used again later in Matthew to make that point. It's how we know it's it's there's going to be a day when the reign of God covers the earth. But this phrase, "all is accomplished," it's an interesting little phrase in the text. All is accomplished. That there was this giving of the law that is accomplishing something. You see, I, when I when I think about law. When I hear the word law, the image that comes to mind is sort of a dusty, quiet library with books everywhere. Fancy books. Big, thick bindings. But when you hear the word law in the Bible, that's not the image that should come to mind. The image that should come to mind is words like relationship, covenant. When you hear the word law, you should think of the story of Israel of God delivering them out of slavery, and then giving them instructions on how to live. You see, law is an expression of love. It's an expression of love. And he says, whoever relaxes one of these. Whoever relaxes one of these. The word relaxes, it's, um, it's the word untie. Forgive me for having so many of these words here, but uh, there's just such imagery coming through in, in the language that Jesus used. And I want us to be able to see all of it. It's the word untie. I like to untie a horse. Whoever unties himself, Jesus is saying right here. So listen, don't, you don't untie yourself from the law. I didn't come to untie you from the law. I didn't come to untie myself from the law. I came to accomplish all that it was pointing to. What's it accomplishing? We're not there yet. Let's keep reading. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were in the audience, if you were up on this mount sitting there with Jesus, this would have been a shocking statement. This would have been a shocking statement. You would have heard that and gone, I guess I'm out then. I've got no chance, no chance for me. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, these were the professionally religious people. The professional, the ones that you looked at their life and you just go, I don't know how they do it. You know the people in your life that you know that you just think, man, like, I'm sure they sin at least once a year. That's them, that's them. And Jesus is saying if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven i.e. you want to be a part of the community that i'm here creating you need a righteousness that's more than theirs it's greater than theirs it goes beyond theirs which begs a question it begs a question why was their righteousness insufficient like i got I, I love my house but it's not my dream house if I, if I wanted to buy my dream house and I went to the bank and said, hey, I'm, I'm buying that house, they're going to look at me and go, man, you have insufficient funds for that house. Why, why is the bank of righteousness that these Pharisees and scribes are bringing, why, why is it insufficient? Why is it insufficient? Answer, because it's defined by externals because the Pharisees in this day at this time defined righteousness by that which is external in their life, by strictly their moral code, by how they lived. You see what happened was the Pharisees untied their hearts from the heart of the law. And the law is from the heart of God. And so to untie yourself from the heart of the law is to untie your heart from the heart of God. So what's the greater righteousness? It's an internal righteousness. It's an internal, heart-transforming, inside-out righteousness that, of course, it changes the way that you live. Of course, it makes you want to live and obey the law. But it's an inside-out righteousness, not an outside-in. It's not a, I live and do these things, and therefore I'm righteous. It's I've been changed from the inside-out, and therefore I do those things. It's an inside out, not an outside in righteousness, which is why Jesus gives six examples. Six examples, 21 to 47, where he says, you have heard it said, where he quotes the Old Testament, and then he says, but I say to you, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever is angry. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I, but I say, whoever looks with lust." And then it goes on with divorce, oaths, retaliation, enemies. What's he doing? He's getting beyond the externals into the heart. He's getting the heart of the matter. He is drilling deep into the heart of what sits inside the law, the heart of the law. And listen, to reinforce, he is not saying the Old Testament doesn't matter. He's not saying ignore that. Right? He is not saying, you, you, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But hey, listen, I guess it's not that big of a deal as long as you're not angry when you do it. It's not what he is saying. He is internalizing the law. He is saying, here is the letter of the law. Here is the heart of the law. These are heart-focused interpretations of the law by Jesus revealing the deeper truth, pushing us off the surface Pushing us off the surface and pushing against the human tendency to externals. Pushing against the human tendency to live in the externals. Because life as a Pharisee is easier, is it not? It's just easier. It's easier to live on the outside, but the broad and easy way is the way of external religion. And if there was any confusion about what Jesus is saying, he closes with a twist on Leviticus to drive this point home. Verse 48. "You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." He is putting a twist on "Be holy as I am holy." But he doesn't use the word "holy, does he? This is the twist. Why would he not use the word holy? Why would he not just quote it? One of the things that I love so much about Jesus—there, there are are many things—is that when you read the Gospels, here's what you're going to find in Him: you're not going to find somebody who just is always trying to be right. You find someone trying to persuade. You find him putting in language that could be heard. So why not be holy as I'm holy? Because what would the what would the Pharisees have done? They would have said, they would have said, I'm doing that. You pick the law and I'll show you where I've done it. I am holy. I am doing what it says. So instead he uses the word perfect, which is a word that means wholeness, inner consistency, inner integrity, no gap between hands and heart, heart and tongue. It means consistency. That in giving this twist, Jesus is giving a clear exposition, a clear understanding of the heart and true intent of the law. That the true intent was always to bring about wholeness. It was always to bring about complete human flourishing. It was never strictly moral conformity for moral conformity's sake. It was always hearts fully devoted to God. And listen, he is not using this word out of thin air. There was a translation of the Old Testament that Jesus would have had, and that word, it got used in First Kings eight sixty one. It says, let your hearts therefore be holy, true to the Lord. Holy, true to the Lord. Same word. Same word. Holy, true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom of obedience for obedience sake. It's a kingdom that renews and redeems and transforms heart and then we live from the redeemed heart. From the renewed, transformed heart. It's about law written on the hearts. But we have a problem. We have a problem, do we not? The law cannot change the hearts. The heart. The law can reveal Christ. It can reveal my sin. It can teach me how to live. But the law cannot enable me to love Jesus or actually change the way that I live. The best illustration I've ever heard for this is that the law is like an MRI machine it can reveal the tumor, but it doesn't have the power to heal the tumor. In other words, this greater internal righteousness that Jesus says he requires for his kingdom doesn't come through the law and certainly doesn't come through perfect obedience to the law so where do we get it where does it come from second corinthians 5 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god in him Might become the righteousness of God. It is a righteousness that comes from Him that on the cross He got our sin. On the cross we get His life. By faith we get His life. We get His righteousness. His righteousness. He is your righteousness. He is your standing before God. It is not your job. It is not your obedience. It is not your record. It is not your bank account. He is your standing before God. And whatever your answer is to the question, this is what I would want to change about my life, which, listen, counselor, hey, Brandon, what's the one thing? Are you kidding me, man? One thing? I don't have enough paper to put it down. I don't have one thing. But whatever your one thing is, It does not keep him from you. It's why he came and died for you. It doesn't push him away from you. It draws him near to you. It led him to the cross for you. And back at the beginning of the text, we said, until all is accomplished. Nothing's gonna pass away until all is accomplished. The the word accomplished, Matthew, Matthew, the word become second corinthians that we might become the righteousness of god accomplished become same word same word what's being accomplished you 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 and your heart being redeemed and renewed. You being changed from the inside out. You having the righteousness of Christ. You being given this greater righteousness in him. You are what's being accomplished. Christ, the righteous one who fully obeyed the law with the heart of God, dying to give you his righteousness and create a community whose hearts are fully, holy, true and devoted to the Lord. You are what's being accomplished. We together are what's being accomplished. Accomplished. But again, we have another problem, do we not? Because we all know this. There is not a single heart in this room that is wholly true and fully devoted to the Lord. Not one of us. Not a single one of us in this room. And if you are saying, yeah, yeah, you don't know me, man. I am holy. Then that's you not being true right now. Not one of us. So the question becomes this, how do we cultivate hearts more devoted, more devoted to God where true healing and change can take place? How do we do it? Answer, together. One of the details in this text that easily and often gets overlooked is this, that of the six examples that Jesus gave, he gave six examples that are all about human relationships. He could have given others. He could have given individual examples. He's not bound to these six. He could have given 600 if you wanted to. He gave six, all about human relationships, murder and anger, adultery and lust, divorce, oaths and our word, retaliation and our enemies. So he's saying, listen, hating your brother but not murdering him, that's not wholeness. That's That's not being wholly consistent. That's hypocrisy. It's inconsistency inconsistency that sits in every single one of us, and it gets rooted out in Christ, in community, through repentance. In Christ, in community, through repentance. The attitudes. Let's jump back there for a moment. We want to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. You want to be a peacemaker? Repent of anger, repent of unholy anger, repent of what you've said about others. Listen, six communal examples about human relationships. You you can't live the teachings of Jesus alone. You simply cannot do it. You cannot internalize this without community and you can't live a life of repentance without others. This does not happen on our own. Repentance requires community and it requires getting beyond the surface. Listen, the Pharisees, they lived on the surface. They they were on the surface of their lives, lived by the external, and Jesus wants your heart. Like I said, it's easier on the surface, right? Life as a Pharisee is just easier. It's just easier. Right? Pain and fear are more easily dealt with on the surface than when we get into the heart. They just are. But Jesus wants more for you. Not from you. He doesn't need anything from you. He wants more for you. He wants more for you. He wants your heart. He wants wholeness in your life. Listen, you're your answer to the question of what you would want to change, it might not fit under the category of any of the six examples that Jesus gave. That is okay. He is not giving an exhaustive law list of how the law can be applied to the heart. He's not giving an exhaustive list, but whatever your answer, whatever your answer, it's simply an example of where Jesus wants to close the gap. It's where he wants to close the gap. And you and me and all of us and our brothers and sisters at Grace Bible and our brothers and sisters at Sojourn Oak Forest and Sojourn East End and Sojourn Montrose, it's where he wants to close the gap in broken relationships and, and, and oh. he wants hearts. He wants wholeness. He wants transformation in us, for us, forged in Christ in community and through repentance. Listen, we, we call our groups, these men, women, and children, we, we call them parishes. And parishes generally begin as places where people are just trying to make some friends. That's okay. But at some point it's got to move beyond just getting to know people. At some point they have to become communities of deep heart-level repentance. Which takes time. Which takes vulnerability. It takes honesty. It takes courage. It takes patience, right? It takes patience. You're not in charge of the sanctification of others. Let the Spirit do His work and be patient. Remind them of the work they've got to do, being honest, open, vulnerable. It's hard. Heart level, Sermon on the Mount kind of repentant living. It's hard, it's not easy. But in the words of my wife, "You can do hard things. You can do hard things. You have the heart of Christ beating in your heart. You can do hard things. Maybe our parishes need to open up this list that Jesus gave and have some honest, heart-level conversation or repentance is needed. If you do, someone likely say, my struggle with repentance is that I rarely think about what I need to repent of. That's okay. We've got to start somewhere. When I say that, and I have said that, it's generally because I'm living on the external, trying to identify the manifestations of sin, but I'm, but I'm ignoring the heart level stuff. That doesn't have to be true for you, but that's true for me. When they say I, I rarely think about it, Let's have some patience and grace and say, wonderful, let's start today. Let's take one step together today. Jesus wants our hearts. He wants your heart. He wants mine. But he doesn't just want it for you or for me. He wants it for others. There is a reason that the mission statement for the Sermon on the Mount came before this text. It's not just for you. Wholeness not just for you, wholeness for others. As I've studied for this series, I've come to see the Sermon on the Mount as a missional document for you, but not just for you. That a redemptive community is a repentant community. A repentant community is a community pursuing change on the inside, a community pursuing wholeness. Willing, willing to get off the surface and do what's hard. Jesus is changing you and he's changing us from the inside out. You have the heart of Christ beating in you. You have been given the righteousness of Christ in him. And in him, you can do what's hard. You can do the work, the hard work, of heart level gloriously painful transformation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the men, the women, and the children that are gathered here today that make up our church at Sojourn Heights. I know, I know the fear of of honest looks inside. I know the difficulty of it. I know that I have brothers and sisters in this room who know it as well. I pray you would give all of us the the kind of courage that comes from grace to see that you, your son, is our standing before you. And knowing that that can't be taken away we can be free. Free. Free to do what's hard. Help us, we ask. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.